Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I don't plan to keep you very long tonight because the psalm that we will be looking at is Psalm 36, and it is not a particularly long psalm, but it is a very theological psalm. In fact, it is so theological that the Apostle Paul actually quotes from it in order to establish the scriptural basis for his arguments about human depravity. So for the first part of this evening, we're going to be talking again about human depravity. Here at GCA, we identify ourselves as a sovereign grace church. Sovereign grace theology sometimes goes by the nickname of Calvinism. But whether you're talking about sovereign grace or reformed theology or Calvinism, it all begins at the same place that the book of Romans begins, which is establishing that all human beings are, in fact, fallen, depraved, and sinful. If you don't know that, if you object to that idea, and there are plenty of denominations that do object to that idea, but if you reject that idea, then you don't really see the very, very good news of Jesus Christ. This past Sunday, a few times, I said, we are really saved people. And I said that after reciting all the things that Christ had actually accomplished on our behalf, despite the fact that we are fallen human beings, despite the fact that we are rebellious and sinful, despite the fact that, as I keep on saying, we cannot be the answer to our problems, We are the cause of our problems. And so when you think about how truly holy God is and how truly sinful you are, the answer cannot be you, and you cannot really appreciate the goodness of the good news, the amazing part of the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace. You can't really appreciate that if you don't know how truly fallen, how truly depraved you are. So I really don't understand the various theologies and denominations that try to play down God's sovereignty and salvation and try to play up man's capability and try to claim that human beings can save themselves by their own efforts, their own work, their own commitment to their own faith. Tom and I come out of a church in California where we were taught faith in faith, basically. Faith was something that you did. You revved up your own faith, and then God would respond to that faith that you yourself would rev up. So you knew that you were saved if, in fact, you could say, I've revved up my faith. So essentially, that's faith in faith. Rather than being faith in Christ, faith in Christ is confidence in 
the finished work of Christ to accomplish everything necessary for your full, complete salvation and redemption. And part of the reason that I am so amazed at theologians or books or denominations, people who try to downplay the sovereignty of God in salvation by raising up human beings, part of the reason that amazes me is because the Bible keeps saying the exact same thing over and over again, and the equation does not change. From the very beginning, after Adam and Eve fell, there was sinfulness, there was depravity in the world. The reason that God brought the flood was because he looked down on the sons of men, and every action and every intention of their heart was only evil continually. Okay, that's just a couple chapters into the book of Genesis. On Sundays, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, and what are we seeing? We're seeing, seeing depravity galore and God's judgment against that depravity. And in every book in between, that is the same theology. And so we keep driving home the theological reality, I think the theological necessity, that human beings are incapable of saving themselves and that God has to do all the saving. God has to be the solution because he gets all the glory. Okay, now having said all that, that is exactly the theology that David is going to spell out now in the book of Psalms. Sometimes when you think of the Psalms, you think that they might just be poetic. Sometimes they might be messianic and a bit prophetic. But sometimes they're just downright theological and doctrinally David agrees with Paul, who agrees with Jesus, who agrees with all the rest of the Bible writers. In other words, there is only one story in the Bible. There is only one theology in the Bible. There's only one anthropology in the Bible. And anything that differs with that is wrong, just, just wrong, at very least sub-biblical, not truly biblical. And so Psalm 36 starts describing the state of natural man in his rebellion against God. You know, in the New Testament, we are referred to as slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness. Paul uses that language. But then if you are not in Christ, if you're not found in him, you are also a slave to sin. You don't have a choice. You're owned by sin. And you are going to serve sin because it is your master. The first sentence of Psalm 36 characterizes sin exactly that way. Gives transgression, rebellion, sinfulness a voice. And says that the voice of transgression is constantly speaking to the ungodly in their heart. Sometimes I see things in the world, I'm sure you're the same way, you see things happen in the world that you just think, how? How do people do that? How do, pe how do you not know that's wrong? How do you allow yourself to reach that point? Well, David's answering the question here, that the rebellious nature of transgression and sin is such that it holds people as slaves and gives them instruction as to what to do, how to think, how to be, 
People are utterly and completely sold out to their sinful, fleshly desires if they're not in Christ. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. The same way that we say, well, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit acts as a governor on our behavior. The Holy Spirit convicts us when our thoughts go awry. And we live by, we walk by the Holy Spirit. That same relationship in the extreme opposite is what happens to the sinners of this world. They are not just neutral. They are under the constant sway of the sinful flesh, of the demonic sinful rebellion of this world, and it speaks to them in their heart, which is why they act the way they do. So in other words, David agrees with the whole rest of the Bible in declaring human depravity. But then the second phrase of that verse is, There is no fear of God before his eyes. Well, that's a big problem. By the way, oftentimes we'll read that we should fear and love God. That is a word that means to appropriately reverence him, to understand his high, holy, righteous majesty and our complete lack of it, and therefore revere him, that kind of godly fear But this particular Hebrew word is a word that actually means dread. Because if you don't have love for God, then you ought to at least know that God exists and you ought to be fearful of him. You ought to dread him because of the judgment that's coming. It's the same way that Jesus said, don't fear men who can only kill the body. But fear God who can put both body and soul in hell. Okay, that's a pretty dreadful statement. What David is saying here is part of the problem with people who are driven by their transgressions that are constantly speaking to them in their heart, part of the reason that they have no defense against that onslaught of sinfulness is because they have absolutely no logical dread of God. And that's a pretty sad state to be in. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, David states that like a theological reality. Turn over to Romans 3 for a moment. Romans 3 is Paul's description of human beings after the flesh. We're particularly interested in 3.18, where he directly quotes what we just read from that psalm. But just so that you can get a feel for Paul's equally sad appraisal of human capability, I'm going to read from verse 9 down to verse 18, because this whole section is Paul picking out quotes and pieces from the Old Testament so that he can declare the absolute depravity of human beings. But you will notice that he is making this theological argument based on what's already written in the scripture in the Old Testament. So Paul is not just making up theological notions in order to make Christ look better. He's stating the same thing that the Bible has always, always said. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they are? 
He's talking about Jews and Gentiles at this point. Are the Jews any better than the Gentiles? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. And now he's just going to go off, quoting from the Old Testament, to prove that all mankind is under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none that does good. There is not even one. Okay, that's the biblical anthropology. It's the biblical description of human beings after the flesh. And when Paul needs to prove that, he goes back and quotes from the Old Testament scripture. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's quoting right directly from Psalm 36 that there is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul is using David's statement as the theological underpinning that proves that his theology is accurate because this is what the Bible says continually over and over again. Have I beaten this horse to death yet? I'm just trying to show, just trying to prove, just trying to demonstrate that wherever you look in the Bible, the description of human beings is always the same. And you need to know that and you need to embrace it. Otherwise, the very, very good news of God's long-suffering, long-kindness, grace-sending his son, saving you, isn't truly good. It's just convenient. But if you know what the Bible says about you, then you can truly enter into worshiping the God that truly, genuinely saved you. On Sunday, I emphasized that word saved a couple of times. I try in the way that I pronounce it to get you to hear that I'm pronouncing it in big, bold font, big red letters, underlined, saved. Okay, so back to the psalm, which even Paul in the New Testament gives a tremendous amount of credibility. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. And there is no dread of God before his eyes. Why? Because transgression and sinfulness inside you flatters you in your own eyes. In other words, your transgression, your sinful flesh, will help you justify your own sinfulness. And it will flatter you and tell you that you're just fine. By the way, I'll just say this parenthetically. There are theologies, there are denominations, there are preachers who will do that flattering for you and tell you that you're fine. God looks at you and he sees a handful of aces. God is so pleased with you. You're doing so good. Here David identifies that kind of justification of sinfulness as being part of the depravity that goes on inside human beings. It flatters him in his own eyes. 
concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Okay, so if not having hatred of your own iniquity is a form of sinful flattery, what does that tell you about what your attitude ought to be toward your own iniquity and your own transgressions? You ought to hate it. You shouldn't just be okay with it, casually buddying up to it. According to David's theology, according to the biblical theology, you should have an actual despising of your own flesh and your own sin and how often you wander off and fall into your own temptations and your own iniquity. I think that it takes the Holy Spirit to do that because Paul says that by the Holy Spirit, God grants some people repentance. And so if you don't have the Spirit of God inside you, you're never going to admit to your genuine sinfulness. You're never going to admit that your iniquity has overtaken you. Instead, you're going to be just like this. You're going to let your sinfulness flatter you, especially when it concerns the discovery of your own iniquity or your hatred of it. You're not going to feel bad about that if you don't have the Spirit of God convicting you that your flesh is sinful. And that's why I so frequently stand here in this pulpit and keep pounding away at the Bible says you're no good. Because over the course of the week, you'll walk around thinking, eh, not that bad. And so the Bible keeps saying over and over, recognize your own iniquity, recognize your own rebellion, because only when you recognize that will you seek a savior. And by the way, that's coming in this psalm. But first, the very, very bad news. Transgression flatters you in your own eyes when it comes to the discovery of your own iniquity and your hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. And he has ceased to be wise and to do good. In the Proverbs, over and over again, when we were reading through them, how often did we see Solomon adjure us to be wise and to do good? That combination of words is repeated over and over in the Bible. Be wise, which means be thinking, be discerning, understand who you are and who God is, and then do good. Walk out your life after the fashion of God's rules, God's law, God's expectation, God's spirit, God's holiness, that should be the inspiration for how you act. But the man who is sinful doesn't do any of that. And in fact, if he's talking, he's being wicked. If he's saying stuff, you know that he's lying because it's full of deceit. Have you ever known people like that where you can say, well, if his mouth is moving, he's lying? Well, David describes that exact thing. The words of his mouth are wickedness and lying, deceit. And he has ceased to be wise and to do good. Even when he's laying on his bed at night, when you think he would be resting, oh no, he's busy devising tomorrow's wicked plans. He plans wickedness upon his bed and he sets himself on a path that is not good, not right, not holy, not just, not godly. 
He sets himself on that path that is not good. And he does not despise evil. He buddies up to evil. He sees evil things and evil people, and he's just kind of fine with that. And if you want to justify your own depravity and your own evil, just find some more people who are like you, and then there's power in numbers. And you can say, well, I'm not that bad, because look, there's this guy next to me, and clearly he's really bad. All of those things that David has described here, he has put in the category of, that's what wicked men are like. That's what evil people are like. That's transgressing fleshly people. Don't be like that. And yet the Bible says, after our fleshly nature, that's all of us. If God left us alone, that's exactly what we'd be like every single day, losing sleep to devise more wickedness. And on top of that, our own transgression and our own evil would talk to us and speak to us all the time in our hearts and convince us not to fear God, but rather it would flatter us so that we would never really look at our sin, we'd never really look at our transgression, we would justify ourselves, we wouldn't know to hate the bad things that we do, and everything we said would be wicked and dishonest and deceitful, and we would not be wise, there'd certainly be no wisdom to us, we'd be like brute beasts, and we would constantly do the evil, and then gather with other people who do the evil. So, if that is who we are and what we're like, That description is not only in Psalm 36, it's in the whole rest of the Bible, which is why I keep stressing it. If that's what we're really like, what hope do any of us have? Well, that's verse 5. In contrast to evil, wicked human beings, David says, but your loving kindness, O Yahweh, extends to the heavens And your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Okay, now both of those rather poetic descriptions have God's loving kindness being above us. It extends to the heavens. It reaches up to the skies. Because when we think of God, we look up. When God changes us and draws us, it's an upward move. He brings us up from our death. He brings us up from our sickness. He brings us up from our depravity. And he does all of that because of his loving kindness to some people who actually fall into the category of the first four verses. Anybody here want to claim that you were never like those first four verses? Those first four verses describe every human being after the flesh without God. For anybody to change their ways, for anybody to have any amount of wisdom, for anybody to dread God and hate their own sin, God has to be the one that does something for you. And his motivation for doing it is his loving kindness, which is so extreme that he will do it for you despite the fact that you're like the first four verses. It is amazing. You can only understand the grace and goodness of God if you understand the very bad news. Thy loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. 
and thy faithfulness reaches to the skies. Boy, that's true. It's just so extensive. It's so immense. It's so massive. It's so beyond us and above us that we can't really imagine that God could love somebody like us. Verse 6. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, and your judgments are like the great deep, like down in the ocean. In other words, he has just described the highest thing on the planet, the mountains, and the lowest thing on the planet, the deeps. And in between them both is the righteousness of God and the judgment of God. And if you know that God is a righteous judge, you certainly ought to fear him. Thy righteousness is like the mountains of God, and thy judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. How is it that anybody takes another breath? Because God preserved them. I mean, after all, at one point, God flooded the earth and killed them all. If they're still living, if they're still breathing, if they still know their own name, it's because God himself has preserved them. Notice the contrast here. All of the sin, all of the rebellion, all the fleshliness, all the God-hatingness, all the justification, all the wickedness, the evil, is all accredited to man. All the goodness, all the righteousness, all the proper judgment and the preservation all belongs to God. And David places that high above us. So I agree with David in verse 7 when he says, How precious is thy loving kindness, O God. Well, yeah. There's very little in this world that you could name that is more precious than the fact that despite the fact that you're you, despite the fact that you're so rebellious and sinful, despite the fact that you were born hating God and telling lies as soon as you came out of the womb, nevertheless, God would choose to love you and then impose his loving kindness on you, impute his loving kindness on your account and on your behalf. It doesn't get more precious than that because you're, to put a fine point on it, you, and he's the God who would love you anyway. And how precious is that loving kindness. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. He describes God as being a bird covering his baby chicks so that no enemy or the rain or the wind can't knock them out of their nest. They're safe, they're secure because of the wings that are overshadowing them guarding and protecting them. And David says, that's what it's like for those people who God has given his loving kindness. Not only does he love them, not only does he judge them properly, not only does he give them his righteousness, but he preserves them for their whole life and they take refuge in him. Here, I'll put it this way. So Bobby, where are you going to go? I mean, when you're really in trouble, when you realize the heinousness of your sin. Heinousness, is that a good word? Heinousity, the (laughs) heinousitude, the, I don't know. When you realize how truly heinous you are, where where else can you run except 
you just held up your Bible. Exactly. The people on the internet couldn't hear you hold up your Bible. But yeah, there's nowhere else that you can run. That's what David is describing when he says, we take refuge in God. Because you can't take refuge in you. I mean, you might come and tell Tom the, the terrible thing that you've just done in the hopes that maybe Tom will forgive you. And Tom probably would. But Tom can't save you. Tom can't fix what's eternally wrong with you. The only refuge you can find anywhere is to hide in the shadow of the wings of God who covers you and preserves you. They, verse 8 says, they, the people who God is preserving, the people who are taking refuge in God, they drink their fill of the abundance of the house of God. And you do give them to drink of the river of your delights. If that sounds familiar, it's language that is used all the way through the Bible. You have to remember, again, that we're talking about the Middle East for the New Testament 2,000 years ago, for David 3,000 years ago. And so every day, as I've said for years, job one was find food. But equal with that was find water. Find good water, find living water. Don't find stale water. Don't find poisonous water. You gotta find water, you need water. If God holds back the rain, well, there's a drought. And then the plants dry up and people don't have enough to drink. Water was a very important element of day-to-day -day life in the Middle East while David was writing this. We go to the tap, we just we turn the tap and hey, water. So we don't really feel the implication of water that the Bible uses. Isaiah says, Ho, everyone who thirsteth, come ye to the waters, you that have no money, come ye, buy and drink. So there's Isaiah on behalf of God holding out that offer of water. Jesus talking to the woman at the well says, I have living water. He says, everyone who has the spirit of God, that out of them is going to flow living water. There's all this water language. When we get to Revelation 22, we're going to see that there are these streams of living water flowing from the throne of God. And the people of God in New Jerusalem have free and ready access to the flowing water of God. That seems to be what David is foreshadowing here by saying that those people who are under the loving kindness and protection of God, they will drink their fill of the abundance of the house of God. And you will give them to drink of the river of your delights. Anybody in this room uh, ever been happy? Really? No. One man? Really? Okay. I mean, okay, so you're delighted. Something happy. Something good happens. You go, hey, that's delightful. Yay, cake for me. Something good has happened to you. Can you imagine what the delights of God are? What happens when God becomes delighted with his infinite delight? And then we get to partake of the infinite delights of God and drink them to the full. Just as much as you want. Just drink up. You that have no money. Come, buy, drink. They drink their fill of the abundance of thy house, and thou dost give them to drink of the river of your delights. 
For with thee is the fountain of life, the constant flowing of life. And in thy light, what a great phrase, and in thy light we see light. We don't comprehend light. Light is mentioned so often. Jesus is the light of the world. When we are born again, we are enlightened. So just like water is used as an example, an earthly example of the delights of God, light is used for wisdom, for knowledge, for understanding. And we don't see light or comprehend light until God's own light is revealed to us, and then we get understanding. Has anybody at any point in their life tried to read the Bible and not been able to make sense of it? When you were younger, at some point, did you? Yes. Everybody's going, oh, yes, yes. Pardon me? How many days younger? <laughs> How many days younger? Yeah, three. <laughs> and then one day, you will read a part of the Bible that you've always struggled with or that you just didn't comprehend, you didn't understand, you didn't get the point of all that begatting. Something in the Bible you couldn't, and then you get it. Why? Did you get smarter? Did your reading comprehension improve? Were you hooked on phonics? Did something happen that you suddenly were able to comprehend the English language differently than you did before? No, what happened was you were enlightened by the Spirit of God. And you won't know light until you see God's light. The book of Genesis begins by saying that there was nothing Void, formless. And God said, let there be light. It started there. God, by his own power and in his own light, exercised his own energy in order to bring about light in the universe. So even today, as you look at our incandescent lights, or if you walk outside and you see that big light in the sky, all of the light that exists, exists because God generated light to begin with and then generated spiritual life so that we could have some comprehension of him. And David condensed all of that theology into the phrase, in your light, we see light. In the light of God, that's where wisdom and comprehension comes from. Isn't that a great phrase? So then, in verse 10, David continues the prayer, having extolled the virtues of God's loving kindness and having contrasted God's loving kindness to human depravity, he then prays in verse 10, Oh, continue thy loving kindness to those who know thee. There's a good prayer. Yes. You've loved me up till now. Don't quit. I'm going to sin again. I'm going to fall again. I'm going to fail you again. I'm going to rebel again. I'm going to wander off like the dumb sheep I am. But I am counting on you and your loving kindness, your eternal loving kindness, to always find me, to always save me, to return me to the fold, to cover me, to cover my sins, to protect me eternally. So therefore, continue in your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness continue your righteousness to the upright in heart 
So how do people become upright in heart? Remember that this psalm began with transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. But by contrast, the godly have the righteousness of God in their heart. And where do they get that uprightness that they're able to walk out? Where do they get the wisdom of what is righteousness and what is sin? They get it from God, whose righteousness produces uprightness in our hearts. O continue thy loving kindness to those who know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. And let not the foot of pride come upon me. Should I say it again? I've said it so many times, it should be tattooed to your brains by now. The most often recited sin in the Bible is pride. And here David contrasts his self-serving pride with God's righteousness. He wants God's loving kindness to produce uprightness in his heart because of God's righteousness. And by contrast, don't let the foot of pride come upon me. Now, the fact that he says the foot of pride, he is probably talking about his enemies who would want to conquer him who would want to conquer the people of God, who would want to conquer Jerusalem. And whenever you went to battle with foreign kings, once you had defeated a foreign king, what you would do is they would put their head down in the dust and you would put your foot on their head. And David seems to be describing that very thing, saying, don't let my enemies defeat me to the point where they pridefully put their foot on me. And let not the hand of the wicked Drive me away. We've seen many times in the Psalms, David's pleas as he is running, as he is acting like he is mad, as he is running from his sons and from his enemies. He wants to stay in Jerusalem. He wants to stay on the throne. He wants to lead Jerusalem in righteousness, but he knows that his enemies are constantly trying to drive him off the throne and out of the land, and he doesn't want to be defeated. Don't let the foot of pride come upon me. And don't let the hand of the wicked drive me away. Verse 12. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. I think that's when he's saying, God is going to preserve me. God is going to continue in his loving kindness to protect me, to preserve me, to keep me on the throne, to keep me from the foot of pride. And when he does that, the doers of iniquity are going to fall. And they have been thrust down And they cannot rise, which I think is David's way of saying, God wins. And therefore, if you're in God and if God is for you, who can be against you? And ultimately, the doers of iniquity are not going to be able to conquer the man after God's own heart, who God himself set on the throne over Jerusalem. Therefore, David is taking refuge in God himself because he knows he's being attacked by the wicked people who are described in the first four verses. So I think ultimately what this whole psalm is telling us is, if I can sum it up, the whole psalm is about human beings are just no darn good. I think we all agree with that, right? David takes some pains in the first four verses to tell us how not good those people are. There's a terrible sentence. But how truly wicked, how truly evil those people are. And the only refuge that any of us have, we cannot protect ourselves. We cannot defend ourselves. 
from the wickedness of this world. The prince of the power of the air is active. And the spiritual wickedness in high places is carrying on day and night. And the rulers of the darkness of this world seem to just be partying at this moment in time. The world just seems to be becoming more and more wretched every day. So what are we going to do about it? We don't have the power. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves, in our flesh, to actually defend ourselves against that. And we will fall prey to the wickedness of this world were it not for the fact that sovereign, holy, righteous God is on our side. And that in his loving kindness, he is preserving us, he is protecting us, and he is giving us a place that we can run and hide from this world, knowing full well that he's going to pour out his delights and his loving kindness on us. So in other words, first four verses, bad news. But when you understand the bad news, you can really, really celebrate the good news that comes after it. And that's why we talk so often about the good news of the gospel. Does that make sense? It's good news, all right. It's good news, all right. And it's a very theological psalm that even Paul picks up and quotes from to prove the validity of his theology of human depravity. So I figure if Paul can pick up that psalm and say, this is my theological basis, then we can pick up that psalm and say, this is my theological basis. Any questions about that? Comments? Feedback? All right. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.